Exodus 13, verse 17, up to and including chapter 15, verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Sephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, and encamped by at the sea by Pi Herachoth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, 
And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, removing their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into it, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's pray. Now may the word of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm guessing that not all are college football fans or pro football fans, but I think even so, you get the idea that at the end of a game when one side is winning in a lopsided way and they have the ball, usually what they do when the clock is ticking down is they don't do anything. They run out the clock. They may hike the ball and stand there for a few seconds and then the quarterback takes a knee. It's considered to be bad taste to run up the score, to to try to score more when you're already in control of the game and the clock is running out. And also, you don't want to expose the ball to the other team by running another play. You, You want to be defensive. You don't want to expose the ball to a possible turnover where the team, the opposite team, could get the ball and 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 possibly score and, and maybe even win the game. And so it's normal to just run out the clock. Although sometimes you find a team that really wants to make a point and runs a play at the end. They want to run up the score. They want to leave no doubt as to who is the superior team. Well, last week in the 10th plague, God sealed the victory. He had already won nine rounds, if we can shift from football to boxing. He'd already won nine rounds. And then in the 10th round, he sealed the victory with a knockout punch over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. So it looked like the game was over. And so what would have been the the conservative route to take would to just to leave Egypt in the most direct route possible and to get out of town while the getting was good. Take a knee. Get out of the stadium while you can. But that's not what God did. That's not what he did. He, he could have wrapped it up right there. But instead, God did what looked like a risky move in letting the opponent get the ball again and let the opponent go on the offense again. And we'll see how he did that. And we see it from the very beginning here. In verse 17 of chapter 13, it said, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way, the land of the Philistines. That's the direct route. That's the short route. That's the way to get out of the stadium, get out of Egypt as fast as possible. And there was a reason for that. It was the near route, but 
God said, that's a route that's, that's defended. And so the people might change their minds if they have to fight a battle right away and they may want to return to Egypt. But then it wasn't just because of that. We'll see that he led them, rather, in verse 18, around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. This is the, the Sea of Reeds, it's called. And there is much debate about exactly what route, and you will see different ideas about the route that they took. But you will, uh, if you go look at a map of, of, of that part of the world, there is the, the big body of the Red Sea, and then there are two kind of finger extensions up uh, the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. And there are different, different debates about did they go to the main body of the Red Sea? Did they go to the, sea, uh, the, the Gulf of, Cor- of uh, Suez or the Gulf of, of, uh, of Aqaba? And I don't think we'll ever really decide that. And it doesn't really matter. But what he did is he led them toward the sea instead of up towards the promised land. And there's a note here. As they were going toward the sea to the southeast in some sort of a a southeasterly direction instead of a, a northeasterly direction, it says that they took something with them. And this is a beautiful detail. They took bones with them. They took bones. Now, many of had left their bones. Many Israelites, their bones had, had been left in Egypt. But there were some bones that they took with them in verse 19. They took the bones of Joseph with him. Now, Joseph was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And he was one of the patriarchs. He was the one that saved the people, uh, the people of Israel. He's the reason that they got down to Egypt because he provided refuge for them there. And he died in Egypt, but he knew that God had promised that, that he would give them the promised land. And so the last verse of Genesis, the last verse of Genesis, or last two verses, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in, e- in Egypt, and there he lay. His remains rested for hundreds of years, but they didn't lose those remains. And when they left... They took them with him. This was a declaration of faith. Joseph said, I'm dying. My bones are going to be here, but God will fulfill his promise. And they conserved those bones that whole time, and they took them with him. And then you find at the end of Joshua, his bones finally get their resting place as they're buried in the promised land. But it says here, as we continue the journey in verse 20, they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Ethan. There are a number of place names Again, there are debates about where these were. It's not particularly important, but it, we do find this the way that God led them. They did not know where they were going. They didn't have GPS. They didn't have MapQuest. They didn't know where they were going. They were in the wilderness, but they were being guided very carefully, and they were being guided by God himself, the Lord himself, in a column. And it was a column to lead them along the way. It was a column that led them by night. It was a column that led them by day. By day, it was a cloud. By night, it was fire. And here we have these two emblems of God, these symbols of God that we find throughout the Scripture, cloud and fire. And you also hear this this repetition, by day and by night, by day and by night, by day and by night. Does that sound familiar? We go back to the creation account. We find that on the first day, what did God make? He made day and he made night. And he's doing it again. And so we have this new creation theme that we heard about last week. God is making a new creation and he is making a new humanity out of the people of Israel 
by establishing a new day and a new night and leading his people in that new day and that new night. And it says in verse 22 that the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before from before the people. God was with his people. Now, this will be a question later. Is God really with us or not? This this question is asked. And it's not the last time that question would be asked, right? Believers in all generations have asked that question, haven't we? Is God is God really with us? And and believers that are in, in, in situations of persecution and of, of famine and of disaster, they, they might ask themselves, or personal tragedy, we might ask ourselves, is God really with us or not? But we see here and we see all through Scripture that this is the distinguishing characteristic of the people of God, no matter what our circumstances, our current situation might be. The answer to that question, is God with us? The answer is a definitive yes. God does not depart from his people. Jesus said that, didn't he? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's day one, as it were. This is day one. Night and day are established. And then we move into chapter 14. Now, surprisingly, God led them toward the sea. And here we have some more place names in chapter 14. So they were to encamp facing the sea. And then he led them apparently into a trap. And he knew that Pharaoh would see that this was a trap. And he led them there so that Pharaoh would say, huh, they, they've entrapped themselves. They're wandering around. They don't know where they're going. They've butted up against the sea. Wilderness on one side, wilderness on the other side. The sea in front of them, they're trapped. And what happened? Once again, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he pursued the Israelites. And what happened here was that that he began to reason and then the, the Egyptians began to reason and said, what have we done? We, we got these people out. We gave them a bunch of things to get out of here as fast as, as they could. But what have we done? We've, we've lost our slaves. We've lost our servants. And so there was a, a general turning of, of heart, once again, against the Egyptians. But I want you to see the purpose here. In verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. These are the two purposes of God in all of what he's doing in here. And if you go back to chapter chapter 4, uh, verse 2, when Moses first goes to, to Pharaoh and says, "Let God says, the Lord says, Yahweh says, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? I don't what? I don't know the Lord. I don't know the Lord. And all of this contest between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh and Moses. All of this contest is so he would know the Lord. And not only he would know the Lord, but the Egyptians would know the Lord. And we see that once again. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And if you look at verse 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have got glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Two purposes that God had in this incident, to get glory for himself and so that the world would know him. Guess what, folks? Hasn't changed. This is what God is always doing. This is God's purpose. And I think we could say safely that in all that God does in reference to his universe or even not in reference to his universe, he does it for his own glory. 
Now, that would be a terrible thing for creatures to do, but that is a marvelous thing for the Creator to do, to get glory for Himself. But it's not only for Himself, but it's so that we might know the Lord, so that the nations might know the Lord. This is the, this is the dual purpose, or the, the one purpose, we could say, that God has, but is, a, is a, a double-sided purpose. He gets glory, we get knowledge. He gets glory, we get to know Him. That's the, that's the mission of the church as well. To, to take the gospel to the nation so that he might get glory and so that people might know him. This is a, this is a great summary of, of what God is doing in the universe. If, if people ask you, what is God doing? What is God doing in our world? Here's the simple answer. He's getting glory for himself. And he's, a, he's revealing himself to the nation so that they might know him. Well, just as God had planned and predicted, Pharaoh pursued them pin them up against the sea, and then we have the reaction of the Israelites in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The first is a very natural reaction. You're pinned up against the sea. The superpower army of the world is is pinning you up against the sea. It's after you. They feared greatly. Natural reaction. Be surprising if they didn't fear. The next one. The next reaction was excellent. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Another good response. When you're afraid, what should you do? Cry out to the Lord. But then the third thing they did is they sarcastically began to blame Moses. Moses, we told you, are there not enough graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? It would have been better if we had served the Egyptians. Interesting. Better that we had served the Egyptians than served the Lord? You see, that's, the, that's the, the question that's put before all of us, isn't it? Is it better to serve the world or is it better to serve the Lord? Is it better to serve the, the world or is it better to serve the Lord? And, and they were saying, well, it looks like at this point it's more dangerous to serve the Lord. We don't, we don't, it's less comfortable to serve the Lord. And so, so well, let's go back to, to serving the Egyptians. And so they took Moses to task, unfortunately not for the last time. Then Moses told them, verse 13 and 14, listen to these instructions. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and now you're in a, you're in a, you're in battle formation. You're, you, you've gone out of Egypt. You've marched out of Egypt. An army is coming against you. And so if you didn't know what this text says, and the general stands up and says, fear not, stand firm, and what would you expect to continue? Fight. Fight. You, you've seen, you've seen the, these epic movies where the, the general gives the speech, right? It goes through the lines and says, Fear not, stand firm, and fight. But that's not what he says. Fear not, stand firm, and see. And see. See the the Yeshua. See the, the salvation of Yahweh, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. There are a few texts that are so clear in the Scripture about how we 
get salvation. How do we get salvation? By shutting up, by being silent, and by watching the Lord act. He's the one that brings salvation. That's the message throughout Scripture since the first sin. God is the one who gives salvation. He's the one who works it. He's the one who works it and gives it to us as a gift. But it was time for Moses to act. Even though they were to be silent, they were to watch. Moses was to act. And once again, he was to stretch out his hand. Verse 15. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Go forward? (laughs) Where? Go forward. There's a sea in the way. Go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And that's what happened. And although there was a, some protection during this time, the, the pillar, the column, it went behind Israel, separated the Egyptians from the Israelites in verse 19 until all night long they were separated. And so Israel could cross the sea coming between Egypt, the army of Egypt and the army of Israel, verse 20. And here's the darkness. Here's the night. Here's the light. Moses stretched out his hand, drove back the sea by a strong east wind. Now, Now, if our geography, our general geography is accurate, the Israelites are on the west bank of some body of water, some piece of the Sea of Reeds, some piece of the Red Sea. And then the the wind is coming from the east, so it's coming from the other side. Now, think about how that would look if you're standing on the west bank and the, the wind is coming from the other bank and dividing the sea. Like a double edged, maybe not a real good illustration for Florida, but a double edged snowplow. Some of you know what I mean. A double-edged snowplow where the, where the snow is pushed to either side, this point. And from the perspective of the Israelites, there would have been this, this point coming through the sea towards them with the waters dividing into walls on every side until it opens up on their side. God opened up the waters. And what did he make in the midst of the waters? He made dry land. Now, This also should ring some bells in our mind. Day, night, divide the waters, make dry land. Have you heard this before anywhere? Day two, God divides the waters. Day three, God makes the dry land. And then out of that, he makes a new humanity. And so here we have once again, these, these emblems of the new creation. Now, um, here we, we see that they went into the, the sea. This is a well-known story. They crossed the sea as on dry ground. It's mentioned over and over here. Dry ground, dry ground. And then Pharaoh said, well, it's dry ground. This is a good a good." situation in which to fight and so he he sent his armies in after the armies of of israel and you know what happened they went into the sea and then god caused a panic verses 24 and 25 and a couple different ways to translate this but it says uh, that god clogged their their wheels actually i think it's probably preferable to say he 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 took off their wheels he ripped the ripped the wheels off the chariots and so there they were in the midst of this Water on one side, water on the other side, on this dry ground, and all of a sudden their chariots are, are falling apart, and, and they are thrown into a panic. And 
they, they cry out. They, they say, let's flee from before Israel. Why? For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They're beginning to know the Lord and know that He fights for Israel against the Egyptians. And then the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand one more time. And so He stretched out His hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. So now we have another image. Now we have waters coming over dry ground. Does that ring any bells? Go back to chapter 9 of Genesis. And you have the dry ground being covered by the waters. And this happened when the morning appeared. Do you remember from a couple weeks ago, the greatest god of Egypt, the god, the sun god, Ra, whom God, Yahweh, gave an uppercut to with a plague of darkness because this God, Ra, this sun God, couldn't produce light when God snuffed out the light. Notice when this happened. Notice when this final victory happened. It happened when Ra was supposed to be showing up. It happened at daybreak. It happened in the morning when Ra was supposed to rise in the east and reign over Egypt. And this is the final blow to the greatest God of Egypt. In the morning, Ra could do nothing for his people. And they understood finally that Yahweh reigns, that he's in control. And here we have the same event was new creation for Israel. And it was the flood narrative for Egypt. For Israel, it was dividing the waters, walking on dry ground for Egypt. It was standing on dry ground that gets overwhelmed by waters. The one and same event is new creation for one. And it's the judgment of the flood for the others. Now the result was, the result was that not only Pharaoh, not only the Egyptians, but Israel knew the Lord. Verse 31 of chapter 14, Israel saw, that's what Moses said, right? Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see. Well, they saw. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Finally. And it it looks like things are going to go swimmingly well now. They feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Now, after this, it was time for a worship service. And that's what we have in chapter 15. It was time to sing a song. And so here we have the song, the greatest hit of Israel. This is number one on the charts. Number one on the charts and always, always was. Because it was the first hymn that we have. They may have sung before this, but this is the first recorded hymn we have of Israel. This is their song. This, this reached number one on the charts and it stayed number one on the charts throughout their history. And here, Moses and the people sang this song. Miriam and the women, they danced and they grabbed the percussion instruments. And so this was a general celebration of the victory of the Lord. The song has three stanzas. Not going to read it at this point, but it has three stanzas. Please read it if you haven't already. Read it later in the light of what we have seen. And it has three stanzas, and each of the stanzas ends with a simile. In verse 
5. They went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 10. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then in verse 16, terror and dread fell upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still like a stone, like a stone, like lead, like a stone. And each of these stanzas ends with, O Lord, verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And then in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, you stretch out your right hand, the earth swallows them. And then in verse 16, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by of whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Now it's interesting that this this last stanza is not about the victory at the Red Sea, it's about the conquest of Canaan. But that hasn't happened yet. But they're celebrating this as a done deal because God has already given the first piece of salvation. He will necessarily give the rest. It's all given together as a package. I am convinced, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you have the down payment, you will get the whole thing. And that's what God says, that we as Christians have the down payment of salvation. And so it is indisputable, it is undeniable that we will get the whole package. That's how it works. When God gives the pledge, he fulfills it with the entire package. Now, this song, uh, this interlude, then there's an interlude here in verse 19. It's a prose interlude uh, before the, the chorus is introduced. And here, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 15 sum up all that this, this event. When the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on what? Dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. What did they do after this act of judgment and salvation? They sang. And it's, it's, it's remarkable that, that God's people throughout, throughout history have been singing people. Singing people. The Psalms are songs. There are songs and psalms strewn throughout the Old Testament. We are a singing people. The people of Israel have always been a singing people. We have their songs and their songbook. And, and Christians have always been singing people. Why are we singing people? It's the, re, the response to God's salvation. We have both experienced salvation as a free gift of God. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and watch God bring salvation. The Israelites saw that. This was the defining act of Israel. It made them as a new people. And the defining act of our identity as the people of God is the death on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The Israelites sang throughout their history. This song, there's a remix of this song throughout the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 78. Look at Psalm 106. Look at Isaiah 51. Look at Isaiah 63. 
All these remixes of this song over and over and over, and they keep singing the same song, remixes of this same song, combinations of this same song, and we keep singing the same song as well, don't we? And we never tire of singing the song of Jesus and His conquest at the cross and His victory in the resurrection. Now, it's fascinating that these two songs come together in the book of Revelation. Chapter 15 of Revelation Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, the last of them. There won't be any more. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. You see, these two songs have come together. This is, this is the final remix of these songs. The song of Moses, the song of, of God's salvation, the song of God's new creation, the song of God's making a new people, and the song of the Lamb who is Jesus, who was slain and who was raised from the dead on the third day. They come together because it's really the same song. The song of Moses anticipates the song of the Lamb and they both celebrate God's salvation. And what do they say? This remix, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. These two songs can come together Because they both celebrate the same thing. They both celebrate that someone was judged so that others could be saved. In the case of the Song of Moses, the guilty were judged so that the firstborn of God could be saved. But in the Song of the Lamb, we celebrate the fact that the firstborn of God was judged so we the guilty can be saved. And so we sing, for God has triumphed gloriously. Sin and death and destruction and sorrow and hell, it's all been conquered because the Lamb who was slain, the firstborn of God, who took the place of the guilty, died in our place and conquered over the grave. We will sing unto the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. Let's pray. Our God, we sing to You. Some of us sing well, some of us don't sing so well. But we sing. We sing to You because You have triumphed gloriously at the Red Sea and even more so at the cross of Jesus and in the empty tomb. And you will triumph even more gloriously when Jesus comes again and we get the full payment for the down payment that we've already received. We sing to you, O God. Fill our hearts today with joy. Fill our our hearts and minds with a melody of praise to you. And may we go through our lives singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb because you have triumphed gloriously. Amen.